2: Here we go, another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, If you're listening to the show live, our 9 o'clock version of the show, and just heard NPR News, I have to admit, I heard a line in a newscast I'm not sure I ever expected I would hear uh, regarding the objects that uh, the uh, uh, military has been shooting down, and the line that caught my attention was, government officials say, aliens are not expected to have been involved. (laughs) We're living in very strange times. I guess I shouldn't be surprised by anything. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody out there. I was thinking about that as well. The New York Times today had a piece on the history of Valentine's Day, but one of the things it included was spending on Valentine's Day this year. And the article points out that Americans are projected to spend $26 dollars billion dollars on Valentine's Day this year that's up from 23.9 billion last year um, and more than half of the people who um, were surveyed in whatever way they were uh, um, identified they say they're going to spend an average of 193 dollars on Valentine's Day so we don't want to buy eggs because they're too expensive but we'll spend 193 dollars. Why? Because we're in love. I think it's lovely. (laughs) Let's get right to the panel. We have some really important news to talk about today. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we just seem to continue to luck out with you. It feels like every Tuesday, your regular day to be with us, we can report on something that's gone on around the special grand jury investigating efforts to overturn the election. And once again, today we have a very big story to talk about Judge McBurney's ruling on what can and cannot be released. We'll get to that in a minute, but I just want to say thank you for being here today.
0: Anytime, Bill. Always a pleasure.
2: We have your colleague Maya Prabhu, government reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Maya, you spend a good deal of your time in the Senate, but you're a utility player. You're all over the Capitol, and we see stories from you Uh, routinely down during the legislature glad to have you with us
3: thank you so much for having me
2: to fill out our journalists on the panel today uh matthew brown matt brown is back with us democracy reporter for the washington post based here in atlanta hi matt how are you good morning bill good morning georgia doing really well here Good, good. And Amy Steigerwalt is back with us, professor of political science at Georgia State University and soon to be sole chair of the political science department at Georgia State. Hi, Amy.
1: Hi, Bill. Good morning, everyone.
2: Okay, let's get right to it. Tomorrow, we've waited, I think, about three weeks since McBurney, Robert McBurney, who has been overseeing the activity of the special grand jury, As a Fulton County judge, um, he heard the case as to whether or not the report, which the special grand jury did file at the end of their proceedings, um, and uh, he heard arguments from the district attorney's office. Uh, Fannie Willis argued it should be kept uh, secret for the time being because she wants to pursue whether there are indictments that will come out of the work that they did. Um, She heard from the media. Uh, a, con- a conglomeration of media uh, organizations, including the Atlanta Journal Constitution, the TV stations, and others, saying, Look, this is public record. We need this material. The public has a right to know. Um, McB- McBurney spent a long time and issued his report yesterday. Just give us the bottom line on what he decided.
0: Well, Judge McBurney decided that most of the report is going to be kept under wraps for now. All the sexy stuff we will not be seeing. uh, And basically, he said we won't be seeing it until after the DA decides what she wants to do in terms of indictment. So it could be a good long while. But he did say he's going to make public three parts of the report this Thursday, the introduction, the conclusion, and most enticingly, comments from the special grand jurors that they believe that multiple witnesses may have lied to them during their sworn testimony now he already said that it's not going to name names so we'll just have to guess but man that raises the prospect of perjury um you know the the da could could try and pursue that as a standalone charge that could be considered a predicate act under uh, racketeering laws is my understanding so obviously, it's going to be a very enticing nugget to look out for. And, you know, I want to tamp down expectations about what we might see on Thursday, you know, the DA had initially said she didn't want any of this to come out before she made decisions on charging decisions. But she's okay with this, which makes me think that there's not going to be any bombshells uh, coming out on Thursday. But the tenor of this introduction and this conclusion, kind of the the attitude that the grand jury has, their tone, I think might give us a hint in terms of what they might have recommended in terms of indictments.
2: You know, Amy, I think a lot of us uh, were struck by the third section that that McBurney is going to allow to be released, and that is the conclusion that uh, the jurors reached that some people, who knows how many, uh, may have lied, in their testimony, because uh, although that could lead to all sorts of additional charges, on the very surface of it, if there are names to those people who lied, it, being indicted for perjury is strikes me as virtually a no-brainer.
1: Yes. Now, the issue is, right, that the DA is facing is that you have an upcoming election Right. We obviously know that one of the people who was looked at within all of this, but who did not actually testify is the former president who has also already announced his run for 2024. And so that sort of brings up broader things. I think the other thought maybe to also sort of explain to people about what was going on here is that McBurney's decision, as usual, was Mm -hmm. uh, kind of a master class in adjudication. And one of the things that he really laid out was sort of this reminder that you only hear one side during a grand jury. So the grand jurors did not hear, right, defense witnesses. There was no cross-examination. There is solely people being brought in, asked questions by the prosecutors. It's a very one-sided presentation. And that was really where McBurney was focused on, is that nobody was able to really uh, get due process and counteract what was happening there. And so that's sort of the other side of this, is that partly it is the jurors saying that they think they were lied to but they don't actually know right it's not also even clear whether or not they've got sort of evidence to back that up or it was just more this sort of feeling that they had that people were not responding um it's sort of unclear also if that's because they thought like was it being lied to or maybe just simply not being forthcoming or saying things like I can't recall I can't remember uh which is kind of, um, lying light maybe you might say it's sort of a, a question of what's happening there and so there, there's a lot in there that we're not really gonna know until uh, number one we hear actually the charging decisions if any and number two see that full report.
2: okay so so Matt I apparently am overstating it when I say that if they've got if they're to leave the people lied it's that that uh, perjury charges are inevitable um, um uh, Amy schools me and makes me realize, got to be a little careful about that. But um talk about in general what you thought when you saw uh, McBurney's uh uh filing.
4: Well, first I thought that he's a very good writer. I mean, for for a judge this was a very vivid um piece of text that actually had a lot of um thoughtful turns of phrase, shall we say, on a on a very nationally watched internationally watched of air i do think that it's also important to note that we still don't know what the grand jurors have entirely heard from. Even this report is not going to include all of the official transcripts and everything of the testimonies that people are going to have heard. So we the known unknowns here are that we don't know mm-hmm. exactly everything that they will have heard in this. Which is why I think that hearing something like the conclusion, for instance, is going to be so interesting because it really will, I think, in some ways show us not necessarily who will be charged, but as as Tamar said, kind of the scope of where we're thinking this is going to be, whether it's going to be, for instance, if it sounds like it's a very very sweeping tone, then it might be people who were involved in this outside of Georgia, who were involved with this inside of Georgia. Where is she focusing and where does it seem like she believes that certain laws were violated? Um, if Is it going to include the former president or not? These, these are the questions that I think are going to be able to – at least directionally be answered a little bit on Thursday. Though I do think it is important to, um, again as Amy noted, that we don't necessarily know exactly what they have that makes them feel this way. It might be that they really do feel like they've got this down pat and that they have you know, documents and testimonies that conflict with each other. It might just be that the vibes were off in the room and that they just don't think that this was um, something that that really passed the smell test initially. So that's gonna be something interesting and we might not get those answers for for weeks or months.
2: My, I, I want to second something that, that Matt just said. Um, we've learned this through any number of rulings that McBurney has uh, issued in the last year plus. He is an exceptional writer. I mean, if he were not a judge, you could easily imagine him being a journalist because he does lay out complicated issues so uh, clearly. And in a minute, I want to read a little bit of what he had to say about some of the issues here. But before I do that... Can you remind me, Burt Jones? Of course, the lieutenant governor has now been removed from this portion of this, this uh, whole case that Fonnie Willis has been pursuing. Um, but there are, are are there other current members of the legislature who are targets? I frankly don't remember.
3: Uh, yes, we have one uh, person who was on the list of fake uh, GOP electors, uh, Sean Still, who was a newly elected senator in the chamber this year. He's kind of kept a low profile so far. Um haven't. I haven't had personally any run-ins with him yet, um, but yes, he he is in the chamber. And then, you know, we do have Burt Jones, who is not part of this round. And um, as far as I know, has not even been assigned a, a special prosecutor to, um, to look into whether or not he, um, you know, he is at any fault in this either. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens if a if a sitting member of the Senate at least uh, isn't implicated in this and what fallout that might bring.
2: So, um, Tamara, uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, – dig down into the ruling because I think it's pretty interesting. All right, so, for instance, um, a- as you know, uh, uh, the media argument was this consortium of media organizations that said this should be public record, it is court – Document uh, that deserves to be uh, made public. Um, McBurney responded to that very clearly. He said, "Look, this is not a court document. This is a document that is um, generated by the district attorney's office. It has never been filed in court in any formal way. It's like a motion. It's like a request for a wiretap." Um, and 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 he says. The only physical copy of the report is in the district attorney's possession, not the court's. It sits in no docket or official court or clerk file that the report, per statutory process, incidentally passed through the court's hand, hands does not make it an official record of the court any more uh, so than a wiretap application, serp- search warrant, affidavit. All, th- these do- all three documents, reports, applications, and affidavits, are part of criminal investigating pr- procedures not court proceedings so he shot down uh, the argument that was being made by the media that this is a, this is a court document and therefore uh, must be made public
0: and here's the issue special grand juries are so rare here in Georgia that there wasn't a ton of case law to help guide him in in his decision making. So it was pretty wide open in this hearing last month when the DA's office and, and the media were kind of trading arguments about whether this was a court record, whether it needed to be released. And on the one hand, you do have Georgia law that states that basically the judge has to release it if the grand jury wants this to be public, which they did. But at the same time, he mentions there are due process concerns. As Amy mentioned. There are no defense lawyers in the room with these witnesses. You can't cross-examine people. There's no defense here. And so I've talked about this on the show before, but there is a, a, a court of appeals ruling here that goes back to the 1960s that says you can't impugn the character of somebody in a grand jury report if somebody isn't going to be indicted and because this special grand jury can't indict people it makes things really really messy and so i can see why McBurney is kind of trying to thread the needle here and at least say for the time being this is a document solely for the eyes of the da um once she's done with it we can, re- we can release it, uh, but for now, this was commissioned by her. This investigation was guided by her, and it is for her eyes only.
2: Amy, to compare it to a regular sitting grand jury, um, there's a similar uh, uh, situation there. Um, you know, the we do not, when a criminal grand jury meets and reaches a conclusion, the public does not see the grand jury report, I don't believe. What they do see is the Mm -hmm. indictments and the language of the indictments that the prosecutor may bring after the grand jury has voted uh, for prosecution. So it is similar in that sense, right? There's nothing exceptional about this.
1: Yes. So it is very true that when we have a grand jury, the idea is that they are collecting information, right? And they're collecting. It's a way to see sort of what evidence there is to try to assess it better before making a charging decision. And part of it is the argument that there are differing standards (coughs) for each of the various steps that sort of go along in investigations, and this is a way to sort of double check it so that we don't perhaps have, right, prosecutors uh, just sort of willy-nilly charging people with things, especially without evidence and things like that. What makes the special grand jury a little bit distinct is this, uh, this law that applies to it, that special grand juries are the ones where you have this possibility of the report, or actually, in fact, it says the report at some point needs to be released publicly. That does not exist in law for grand jury reports, right? Those are never released or the uh, what it is that the grand jury does, whereas a special grand jury, because it is convened for a very particular uh, reason to give this type of advice, gets under this other uh, provision in the statute, and it is also accompanied by uh, this... dictate that says, eventually, the report that they have produced will, in fact, be uh, released publicly. A normal grand jury doesn't actually uh, produce a report, per se. What they instead do is they hear the information, and then they're asked, do you support an indictment or no? Um, And so that sort of goes forward, but there's not this kind of written report that the jurors come to and are uh, then presenting, and that eventually, we know, will be made public.
2: So, uh, Matt, uh, one last uh, element of the uh, report of the filing that uh, uh, the ruling that that McBurney released. And it's a it's a line that uh, caught my attention. Uh, He says, having reviewed the final report, the undersigned, meaning Judge McBurney, concludes that the special purpose grand jury did not exceed the scope of its prescribed mission. And then he says this. indeed. It provided the district attorney with exactly what she requested, a roster of who should or should not be indicted and for what in relation to the conduct and aftermath of the 2020 general election in Georgia. Now, he goes on uh, to uh, uh, say again, because there were no representatives of targets in the um, grand jury uh, it, it 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 that's another reason due process wasn't followed. But but the very fact that having looked at the report, uh, McBurney can say in his filing, "Yep, this document does say whether people should be indicted or not is in itself intriguing, and we can't wait to see all this, can we?" <laughs> <laughs> right definitely i think that it really
4: underscores that despite all of the politics that have obviously been circling around this case over the past two years with you know um people who have been um become targets of of the investigation people who have been witnesses who mcburney has actually said like um many elected officials in georgia who were actually um potentially um, implicated in this as as targets of the conspiracy to overturn the election, that those folks um, who were saying that this could be political, that it actually turned out to not be that way from what McBurney said. And and this is the guy, I remember, the judge who has presided over this over for the better part of two years to make sure that it didn't go in that direction. So I think that this is both him you know, giving a praise to the district attorney in this case that she was able to conduct this properly. But it's also him basically saying that after you know two years of, of a lot of political pressure from both sides to basically come up with a certain result, that, that he feels confident that, that what we're going to eventually learn about this case was not um, unduly influenced by a lot of those outside forces.
2: Okay, let's talk about the politics of this for just a couple minutes. Uh, it's already been pointed out by one of you that we have elections coming up next year. Donald Trump uh, will be on the ballot in primary states for president. Uh, Fonnie Willis is up for re-election next year. So, you know, things are unfolding in terms of elections sooner uh, than later. And, um, I, I, you know, my, I guess part of my question is... When Fonnie Willis said at on the day that the special grand jury report was turned over to the court to McBurney and argued about um, that uh, the decision on indictments is imminent, it, it she didn't really set a timetable, but she does have some pressure. It strikes me to do something relatively soon, Maya. <clears throat>
3: I mean, you would think so. And I don't want to steal Tamar's thunder because she is the one who spoke with her yesterday about this. uh, And she asked her what imminent meant. And, you know, she said uh, uh, legal imminent is different than journalist imminent or reporter imminent, I think is the word she used. Um, So (laughs) I think a lot of us, when she said that, we started like preparing for like indictments to be coming, you know, that next week, we thought. Um, it turns out that's not the case. <laughs> um and and I really don't know when when they might be coming now. Um, but I do think, you know, there is some pressure for her to do these things sooner than later. Um, because soon she's gonna have to start focusing on her reelection campaign too.
2: Tomorrow?
0: Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about kind of the naked political dynamics in this. You have Donald Trump, who's going to be on primary ballots this time next year, running for his third Republican presidential nomination. Uh, you know, I spoke with political analysts last week who said, on the one hand, having an indictment looming or having being under indictment. Could hurt him because, of course, he needs money uh, from big donors, and they might be very wary of cutting big checks if you're if you're under indictment. He, uh, you know, there's all these potential primary challengers who are waiting before they dive in, but maybe they'll they'll see Trump as being weak and maybe a sign that they should jump in the race if he's under indictment. At the same time, um, this kind of plays exactly into Trump's narrative that the political establishment, that judges are after him, and he's. Being being unfairly targeted by the deep state and so potentially this could help him circle the the wagons around him and uh you know secure that that support that he uh so desperately wants so could help or hurt. I don't know. And then, of course, we have the DA um, who is up for reelection for the first time since she was elected in 2020. And this investigation will affect be on the ballot as well. She's been uh, criticized by many people. Why are you focusing on this, on chasing a former president when crime, you know, violent crime is is up in Metro Atlanta, when you still have this massive backlog of cases from the COVID-19 pandemic? Those are questions she's going to have to answer for. And remember, as Maya can, I'm sure, attest, to, there are these bills that are starting to float around in the state legislature that could be used to uh, retaliate against Fannie Willis should she do anything that they don't like. This bill from Houston Gaines in the House that would make it easier to recall district attorneys. Um, I believe there's a rules package, Maya, that is in place now or being debated that would make it harder to subpoena sitting legislators. Um, So they're saying that this is not a direct response to what Fonnie Willis has been doing. But of course, bills can be amended and things can change as this session continues.
2: So I want to ask you two questions about that uh, tomorrow, because I think, I I don't think there's any other reporter who has established quite the uh, link to Fonnie Willis as you have throughout this investigation. And one of the questions is what's her demeanor in all of this? I mean, she is under tremendous pressure to do something, right? The whole country is watching this. Um, does, does that show? Is she calm? Is she methodical? Is she confident? How, what's the demeanor that you see from her as recently as yesterday?
0: I mean, kind of two things. Right now, she's being extra careful I've noticed in her public statements she'd come um, she'd come under criticism recently for saying too much in the media and in her court filings about this investigation and even you know Republicans had been saying that for a long time but I was starting to hear legal voices say that and I've noticed the last couple months she's been extremely careful about what she's disclosing she used to give a lot of interviews she's really not doing that these days at least not on this topic but then the second way I would describe Fonnie Willis is confident a little defiant, like she, she very much has, um, confidence in her abilities as a prosecutor and what she's doing and even decisions that she's helped, um, you know, convictions that she's helped bring about that are considered controversial. I'm thinking of the APS decision. She used RICO to to get guilty convictions for a dozen educators. She stands by everything she's done. And she, you know, she when she believes something, she holds to it and and won't kind of bow down to that. So I think should she decide that she does want to go after former president? President Trump or anyone as a result of this investigation, I'm not expecting her to waver in that decision.
2: You know, Matt, it's kind of remarkable when you think about it, because not only does she have this investigation of the election going on, but she also has this enormous, enormous uh, case, the YSL, RICO case, which is going to be one of the biggest cases uh, in Fulton County for, I think it's fair to say, in, in decades to come the two of them together Mm -hmm. uh so uh, the uh she has a lot on her plate (laughs) man
4: right absolutely and i I, in our profile that we did of her at the post we we really underscored that um as tamar was saying that she is very undaunted like she's she she will she will go after um, any cases in which she sees that she believes that there's been injustice that's been done, in which there's been wrongdoing that's happened. And I really think that that underscores that she has a strong conviction for accountability. And that's something that I think when we're discussing, especially the, the 2020 election interference case, this is a a situation where a local political system is is attempting to, in many cases, find understanding and accountability in what happened in efforts to potentially interfere with it in the 2020 election. And that is incredibly politically fraught for all the reasons that we've been discussing, um, especially because we live in a very populist era of our politics when candidates like um, the former president are competing for are running against the system. Oftentimes, when they when they say things like um, fighting the deep state and whatnot, so so that is something that puts her in a difficult position. Especially as people are also going to be looking at her in non-political cases like YSL that are going to you know be really striking at the the, the heart of um, you know a big cultural part of Atlanta, for instance. So so this is something that I think she is finding herself in the role of what. She, this is a job she signed up for, quite frankly. like this is this is what a district attorney does. <laughs> but it is yeah. really striking at the core of not just you know parts of you know the, Amer- the the heart of American political divides right now, but also questions over you know what type of city Atlanta wants to be, what type of city Metro Atlanta um, place Metro Atlanta can be. And Fannie and Willis is playing a huge outsized role in that right now as, as a lightning rod for a lot of those um, national and local debates.
2: All right. Well, we're all looking forward to Thursday to uh, see what we get uh, uh, in terms of the report from the special grand jury. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. Then we're going to turn to other political news. This is Political Rewind.
4: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
2: Amy Steigerwald, Maya Prabhu, Matt Brown, Tamara Hallerman join us for today's uh, political uh, rewind. Uh, Let's talk about some legislative uh, issues and uh, also something that's come out of the attorney general's office, Chris Carr's office, because they both kind of relate to cultural issues, uh, hot button issues that many Republicans claimed when they started the year, they did not want to get into in a major way. But, Maya, here we go. We now have a bill uh, in the Senate which uh, would, and you'll tell me the exact language of this, but would prevent young people, and I don't know what the age on this is, you'll fill us in, uh, from any kind of transgender surgery or medical procedure that would aid in that transition, right?
3: Yes. So it it you know it bars healthcare professionals from uh allowing anyone who's a minor, that's the that's the age they put on it, anyone who is a minor from getting um any type of transgender treatment. And that's (laughs) surgical and also Ah, uh, they specify hormonal as well. Um, I think a lot of places typically focus on the surgical part because a lot of that is non-reversible. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this bill also is targeting hormonal um, hormonal treatment as well. Um, and so a lot of times when uh, kids are young and they uh, they have, this um realization of gender identity they will take things known as puberty blockers to stop um you know stop puberty from progressing to the point where they will physically no longer look like uh the gender that they identify with and so this this bill would would stop um healthcare professionals in Georgia from letting anyone who is a minor do that
2: uh, are there criminal penalties attached to a prof- medical professional who goes ahead and aids in a transition?
3: I I did not see any criminal um, implications, but it basically said that they would be um, uh, evaluated by the, the board that certifies them to get their license. So basically they could have their license revoked.
2: Amy, um, y- you know, it's interesting. Uh, it, it strikes me that the legislature in a matter like this, in terms of so-called protection of young people, want to take the responsibility away from the parents. Um, Janice and I happen to know probably four couples whose children are transgender. We watched all of them go through what was started out as a very traumatic process for the whole family. And, and in each case ha- has ended up, and these were, in three of the cases, minors. Um, and in three of the cases... Of, Things couldn't have gone better, and, and now the, the family is happy. The fourth is still sort of up in the air. And, and I don't quite understand, except from the point of view of pushing a cultural issue to play to the base, uh, the legislature deciding they have more right to deal with the, what, a, what a minor child needs than the parent.
1: There is a certain irony in a legislature that last year pushed a parent's bill of rights. uh, Simultaneously now pushing a bill, uh, which, as you said, would take away the ability of parents to be making these decisions. Because obviously the children are not making it on their own and they're doing it with support. Um, I do think one of the things that Hmm. um, is difficult in this is that it does... Overlap with sort of beliefs about uh, what is and is not proper behavior. And so that is driving it, and these types of cultural wedge issues. Um, There are very few protections for transgender persons in the United States, period. Uh, it is also a very small community, which makes it uh, sort of easy to kind of pick on on some level. They don't have a lot of political power. Uh, it's something which seems very uh, different and possibly frightening. And so it sort of fits into all of the research that talks about kind of threat analysis and scapegoating and wanting to focus on these things uh, and creating wedge issues, especially as we move forward and try to figure out what can one do to um, keep their base and keep going. And it's a sort of unfortunate thing that this type of... uh, Threat revocation and um, types of wedge issues are particularly useful for cultivating one's base in electoral politics.
2: Maya, jump back in.
3: Yeah, and just to add, you know, today in the Senate Education Committee, they're hearing a bill that they're calling the Parents and Children Protection Act of 2023, which is... Basically a version of what activists called the Florida, don't say gay bill, you know, that bans uh folks at school um teachers, faculty at staff at schools from talking with minors about gender and gender identity. So like that that's in um that's in a that's in committee today. Um, and it's in the committee that is the man who's the chairman is the sponsor of the bill that limits transgender um, medical care. So it's interesting.
2: Matt?
4: Yeah, I think that this is really underscores, just from a democracy perspective, the the difficulties in having a statewide um, discourse about these very, very deep um, cultural issues. I, I I think that, the for instance, I think it's notable that these bills that we're talking about now were introduced after just a year ago the the discourse was all about um whether or not um you know trans students should be able to compete in um you know the sport of their gender identity and that, and that was specifically focused on on whether trans women should compete in women's sports this was a huge issue when i would talk to folks um going around the state um in during the 2022 midterms among the um, gop base anyway but i think that when you talk about questions of um, you know, parents' rights and local control. Like re- really the debates that we're having are are what is the the role of um sex and gender in our culture and everything. We're we're not having those, you know, honest debates with each other. We're having these very cultural wedge debates as everyone's talking about and political and political exploitation, um, to exploit these issues, um, shall I say, to for you know, political um, points and whatnot. So I, I think that more squarely just um, addressing the question of, and then more honestly, having questions over what are the sentiments underlying some of these bills, I think would be a benefit to all communities. Because in some parts of Georgia, you have a lot of, you know, who, legislators who represent places that are very hostile to, um, you know, trans rights, LGBTQ issues. And you've got a lot, a lot of other places in the state where, you know, it's not abnormal at all to know a trans person or to have a trans child. So I think that the fact that we are trying to adjudicate these cultural disputes through legislation is ultimately an unproductive and in many ways harmful way of actually taking and carrying out um, this discourse.
2: You know, tomorrow I think Matt makes such an important point. I mean, I think it's fair to say that in things like understanding transgender, uh, in back in the day, understanding gay marriage, there is a learning curve. There, there is a moment at which you say, world is changing around me. This is strange to me, but I'm now going to learn about it. I am going to uh, uh, try to make a more uh, considered judgment. And I think that happened certainly with Americans with gay marriage. And the transgender issue is still somewhere in the middle. People are still not quite comfortable. They're not quite sure what this is all about. But as Matt points out, it's not a really... Deep conversation where we are asking people to talk about uh, their experiences in dealing with a transgender child, say, it's all uh, political. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, in her response to the State of the Union the other night, you know, says uh, uh, Democrats, Biden can't even tell you what a woman is. It's all playing to the base.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's such an easy way to kind of otherize. You can talk about people being so politically correct. I mean, it it has become kind of past the point where we're having actual conversations. And it's important to note that this legislation in Georgia is not happening in a in a vacuum. It comes after Texas, Idaho, Alabama have all passed similar bills. Um, this particular bill has been debated in Georgia for a couple years now, um, and I mean I think something that's lost in all of this is is kind of the impact that <laughs> it would have on like actual on actual kids you know trans kids are something like 3 times more likely um to have suicidal ideations or or you know to to think about committing suicide and so um you know, there's plenty of critics of this bill who say, what are you doing other than making these kids' lives harder? Um, I shout out a, a doctor who focuses a lot on trans issues in, in Decatur right before the pandemic, and she was saying that, you know, these puberty blockers, especially in hormones, it's something that you start talking about when a kid gets about to be like 13, 14, and what a difference it makes as a kid is still figuring out their gender identity to be able to buy a couple years before, before you do things like a surgery, as you kind of make sure you're figuring out okay this is where my gender identity aligns and and what a life-saving thing that can be for a lot of these kids but you talk to the sponsors of these legislation this legislation they they say that they're doing you know they want to prevent kids from doing anything that would be irreversible so a lot of that's gotten lost though and and it's unfortunate
2: all right um thank you for that discussion Uh, uh, we got to get to the final break of the show when we come back I do want to talk about Chris Carr who has now joined a suit with at least 22 other Republican attorneys general, uh, that would take one more step in the uh, fight to uh, 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 stop abortions across the country. We'll do that more after these messages.
5: At a time when
2: information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes, you
0: need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever
2: you get your podcasts. Amy Steigerwald, after the passage of Georgia's heartbeat uh, law, one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country, more recently after the overturning by the Supreme Court of Roe, uh, Georgia legislators, Republicans, uh, including Governor uh, Kemp, the Speaker of the House, Lieutenant Governor, were all asked, well, do you want to do more with abortion this year? More restrictions. You want to ban it outright. What do you and they've all said they want to stay away from it for the most part acknowledging that somebody's going to come up with something and you never know whether it'll gather steam or not. But turns out that the next front here in Georgia, at least for the time being, comes from the attorney general's office. Chris Carr has uh, now joined a lawsuit that is, um, has been taken up. By I think it's 23 Republican attorneys general across the country who are seeking to eliminate the option for the abortion pill to uh, be used across the country, even in states where abortion is legal. Amy?
1: Yes. So the um, what they are actually seeking to do is overturn the FDA's approval of the drugs themselves. So the uh, drug in particular, nifephepin, um, which I'm probably not pronouncing correctly, so apologies to all the doctors out there. um, Some wrong type of doctor. They uh, approved this all the way back in 2000. So this drug has been used, it has been approved, it has been dispersed quite a lot. Uh, It was obviously approved after the normal FDA drug approval process, right? There was all of the data that was given, there were the tests that were done of the assessment of, uh, the risks and what types of you know concerns there were, and the FDA approved it, right, and put sort of you know restrictions on when it can be used and how it can be used, et cetera, just like they do with any other drug. So they're coming in and they're saying, this should uh, that basically that a federal judge should overrule the FDA's uh, approval of this drug 22 years later. And the uh, concern, right? The FDA is saying, look, here's the problem, right? You don't have right, any data suggesting that this drug actually is truly harmful or that right we've had some sort of misassessment of the risks. Uh, it's 22 years later. It's been in thing. This is not because of right concerns that have been brought, that there is some like problem we didn't know about, that there was uh, some malfeasance in the drug approval process, because certainly the FDA uh, does go back when issues like that occur. Instead, this is really more of a political argument that because the drug is attached to abortion, it should not be allowed. And the FDA is really concerned, uh, at least in their brief, that The implications of this could go for lots of other drugs that get approved as well. And what would now be the standard for saying that a drug that has long been approved, that has gone through all the processes, that does not seem to be showing any of the things that normally trigger uh, an FDA review of a drug approval can now be overturned.
2: Okay, so I'm going to get on shaky ground here, but I think, Maya, while the drug was initially approved 22 years ago, the FDA made a much more recent ruling during the Biden administration, encouraged by the Biden administration, which made it easier for uh, women to order the drug by mail. I, and, and I'm not, I, again, I don't remember the circumstances, but I know that that accelerated concerns about uh, the abortion pill.
3: Correct. So um, this was a uh, pandemic response to women who wanted to be able to terminate their pregnancies, but were unable to see a doctor in person. So uh, the Biden administration made it so that um, it was a temporary rule that became a permanent rule in late 2021, uh, made it so that someone could, a doctor could um, prescribe the pill via telehealth and then the pill could also be sent through the mail to the to the woman who was seeking to to terminate her pregnancy um you know we had some effort in georgia to stop that from happening practitioners Mm -hmm. here say it wasn't happening to begin with um and even now with our you know um hb 481 our abortion law on the books um it requires um doctors to detect fetal cardiac like to to check for fetal cardiac activity so it's impossible for uh someone to prescribe these pills via telehealth in Georgia without violating the law so this thing that Carr has joined, um, you know, he's, he's throughout his years in office, always said that he's a very, very strong pro-life advocate. He's pretty much whenever there's been any type of, uh, opinions or challenges, he's joined on with this and, and made it part of his, um, campaign last year. Um, but it doesn't affect Georgia.
2: Tamar, um. We have seen times when attorney, general, attorney generals in Georgia have uh, been at odds with their governors. Uh, Thurbert Baker and Roy Barnes used to fight all the time over issues of law. But I think it's probably safe to say that a Chris Carr doesn't join a lawsuit like this without at least having a conversation with Governor Kemp, who obviously is also uh, a very uh, strong believer in a barring abortion as much as possible
0: yeah absolutely i don't think anybody would call the governor pro-choice so this definitely falls in line with that and um the two have been in lockstep more or less on this issue maya can correct me if i'm wrong on this so i'm not surprised that that he's joining this lawsuit i'll be curious to see um at the supreme court how how this this empowered conservative majority uh what they do with a case like this
2: you know matt here's here's what's interesting about this to me again. The legislators so far have not brought forward any particularly dramatic new restrictive laws of of, of bills about abortions. And and that's where we get a lot of attention. I mean, the minute a a legislator files, say, a bill that would absolutely ban abortion in Georgia, it would be front page news. It would be headline news everywhere. It's interesting when a lawsuit like this is filed that it's sort of, it's not really a backdoor approach, but it isn't getting, it doesn't get the kind of attention that legislative action does somehow.
4: Right. And I think that this is a a question more broadly of, of laws versus policy versus, I mean, this is a question of enforcement, really. Like just because you've passed a law doesn't mean that a thing is actually going to happen necessarily. And I think that Right now, the anti-abortion, pro-life movement are really confronting the fact that with Roe v. Wade overturned, they really do have the opportunity to actually um, envision the world to create, bring about the world that they want, which is one without abortion. But a lot of that isn't just, you know, in even states that are solidly opposed to abortion banning it you have to actually figure out ways to enforce it so for instance in this case if it is a reality that your state has made it um you know functionally impossible to get an abortion but it's still possible for someone to call um up a teledoc and go and get um some abortion pills then that is something that doesn't actually get the intended effect that a lot of people in this movement want which is why cases like this are actually where a lot of folks have turned to and 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 my colleagues at the post have done some fantastic reporting on this on kind of what what the thinking is inside of the movement right now um where they're really thinking we have to make sure that in the places that we feel that we can actually make it so there are less abortions, that we actually bring that about before we can even get to, for instance, trying to make it so that, you know, on a, a federal, on a more federal level, but states that are very friendly to abortion rights, for instance, are, um, you know, curtailed in that. So, so this is something that I, it's not necessarily surprising to me that a state like Georgia, which already has pretty, um, restrictive abortion laws would now turn to this or be more amenable to this, especially as, um, legislators here are trying to avoid super, you know, controversial high profile, right, um, right you know, debates.
2: All right, one final item before we're uh, out of time. Uh, Maya, it comes back to you because I believe I'm right that it started in the Senate. We got another Buckhead Cityhood bill. Uh, Nobody seems to know much about it. Your colleague Patricia Murphy wrote a great column the other day trying to track down what the sponsors of the bill specifically have in mind, and they all basically said, we're not saying anything. Uh, Is this bill going to go anywhere this time?
3: You know... It remains to be seen. It, it's possible that it gets some traction um, in the Senate. Uh, the Lieutenant Governor was uh, one of the supporters of this last year. Um, so it, it's possible. The sponsors are remaining very tight-lipped. Um, I think, you know, I heard that the sponsor has has said, you know, uh, he's not gonna do any interviews on this at all. Um, and, uh you know bill white who's been leading the charge has also been avoiding um interviews i think what he said kind of put the brakes on it last year
2: uh, 30 seconds for you on this one amy uh it it appears right now the uh, the aps atlanta public schools have just said we're not playing with a buckhead city and that's a huge issue in this whole thing where are those kids going to go to school if they live in buckhead city
1: that is the question that no one knows the answer to.
2: All right. And you know what? We're going to keep on top of that and we'll look for answers in the week's ahead. One really quick final comment. I want to tell you, we did a show yesterday with Thurbert, uh, with, with Michael Thurman uh, as, as one of the real thought leaders in Georgia. And I have got to say, we got more response to what Mike Thurman had to say than any other show we have done. And I'm really grateful that you all uh, appreciated hearing so much from the DeKalb County CEO. That's it for us today. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. We'll talk about Nikki Haley a little bit on tomorrow's show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and stay healthy.